Good morning, Grace. How are you? Everybody stand. You know, sometimes, you know, on top of, you know, having bosses, I feel sometimes that timer's my boss is like, you can't talk until zero. <laughs> no, I just want to welcome you guys and let you know that we are so happy that you're here in the house of the Lord. Online, thank you for joining us this morning. Let us worship and let us leave our heart here at the altar with God. Let's worship this morning. Over me, you have. 
Good morning, church. Oh, come on, friends. Good morning. All right, you may be seated. We're delighted to have you with us. We're delighted to have you online. We are Facebook only this morning, so if you're on YouTube, sorry. Anyhow, uh, switch over to Facebook. Uh, We are excited to have you. A couple of quick announcements today. Uh, We are going to be celebrating uh, mothers, and I know it's a little bit early, but we're having the Mother's Day potluck early, so because we know you're going to be taking your moms out next week, right? So we're having a potluck right after. Remember potlucks, right? Potlucks, right? You know, uh, potlucks are delicious. We have some really good cooks here, so we're excited about that. If you do not like what's in the potluck, if you're like me, every, every old grandma that makes something watches to see if I eat what they make. So the rule as a pastor, if you don't like it, you just stir it up a little bit and then move on. You just pretend you... I'm just teasing. It's going to be delicious. Join us right after the service for that uh, in the Grace Hall. Uh, It'll be a great, great event. We're excited about that. Also, uh, we have our baby shower fundraiser. You'll see we've got a crib over there, which is a little bit unusual. And we've got some diapers. I saw many of you bringing in uh, goodies for the kids. This is for the pregnancy center here in Corpus. We're going to be doing this all the way through May 8th. So thank you for bringing donations and making that better. It's something we do as part of the DNA in our church to help those who need a little help. Amen? All right. And then, of course, Wednesday night, we've got Holy Grounds coming back this upcoming Wednesday. Join us for a worship service. It is a 45-minute total worship service. The potluck is wonderful. We have a potluck at 6.30 and then 7 to 7.45 tops. I promise. promise. That includes music, right? Absolutely. See that? See, we're all together. We're a good team. All right, so this is when we stand up and pass the peace and say hello to someone you know and don't know and be kind and cheerful and nice and be, be brave. So, pass the peace.
right, all right, all right, all right. I'm going to encourage you to remain standing. That's enough peace. No more peace. That's enough. Okay, we're going to do another song, and we're going to give an offering during this song, so let's, let's go to God in prayer. God of grace, we give thanks for this church. We give thanks for all the blessings that you bestow upon this church. We ask, God, that you bless these gifts and tithes and offerings. May we be generous so that your ministry may be blessed and poured out to many. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Amen. I want to do a real quick introduction. I've had a couple of people on stage with us these past couple of Sundays. So first I want to introduce Rose. So um, a birdie came into my ear one day while I was worshiping and I was asking God, Lord, I need you to send me some singers. I wanted to sound a little bit more full. And then God just said, well, Rose sings. I was like, oh, okay. And then I'm like, well, maybe she won't want to. Just ask her, Miriam. Okay, Rose, you want to? So I just want to say that God did tell me. And so I asked Rose and she said yes. And then we also have Mario over here. Uh, so here's Mario. Hello. Mario is uh, Lorenzo's nephew. So I have them here singing with us and worshiping. And so let's worship this morning again as we take an offering. <laughs> So when I fight, I 
Father, a God who fights our battles. We just praise and we worship you, Father, as we continue singing this new song that we're going to sing. One and only Jesus. There's only one Jesus, and he is here for you, reaching out his hands for you. Let's worship this morning with this new song.
this morning, Father. Open our minds, Father, to what your word has to say, Father. We just give you all honor and all the glory. Amen and amen. Amen. We can say amen. Yes. Let's give it up for our fantastic band. They do a great job leading us every week. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I just want to start with a... uh, A question today, raise your hand if you're a person who says, you know what, hey, I know a lot of people. Raise your hand if you know a lot of people. Come on, raise your hand. If you're at home, you know, you can just put in, I know a lot of people. Okay, raise your hand if you have more than 50 friends on Facebook or social media of some kind, more than 100 friends, 200 friends that you don't know, 500, 1,000, all right. Well, guess what? If you raised your hand at all, I'm going to tell you, guess what you are? You are famous. You're famous. Now, you don't believe me. Turn to your neighbor right now and say, of course I'm famous. Go ahead and say that right now. Of course I'm famous. Of course. Of course I'm famous. Come on. Understand this. Influence does not require a position. You don't have to be a pastor, you don't have to be a mayor, you don't have to be anybody. Like, let's just take the church. In our church, we have elders, we have people that are elders. Oh, you hear the angels sing when they walk in the room. They're elders. They're leaders of the church, right? But there's also implicit power in a church. There are people who have power just by nature of who they are because they've been here for 50 years. And they are the mama bear of the church. When I want something done, you know what I do? I go talk to one person in the church. Her name's Avril. She's right back there. Avril, raise your hand. Come on, Avril. Yeah, that's right. That's right. When we needed a new church sign, and we needed a new church sign, bad. I went to Avril first, and then Avril went around and said, don't you think we need a church sign? Everybody said, we need a new church sign. It was Avril's idea. Right, Avril? All right. There are people in your life who you have no influence. Now, listen, I want to tell you something. I'm giving my life and everything that God has given me to try to influence people, to tell them about Jesus' love, to tell them about God's love. I'm even growing a goatee now to try to influence my goatee friends, all right? (laughs) Now, look, Renee hates this. She's ready for this to go. But I want to tell you something. Where is Renee? Where is Renee? Where is baby doll? Renee, there's been a few ladies that came up to me today and say, oh, we like it. 
All right, anyhow, let's get to the sermon. Are you all ready? Say amen. amen. But hold on to that thought. You are, you are, in fact, famous and influential if you know a lot of people. Now, the last few weeks we've been talking about the moon. And remember the moon in Psalm 92 says the moon is God's sign and covenant of his faithfulness to us. So in 1968, we talked about how Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon. And before Neil Armstrong took that first step, uh, Buzz Aldrin had prepared notes. He read the Gospel of John, and he took communion. And the Last Supper was celebrated as the first meal and the first supper ever had on the moon. I think that's pretty cool, don't you? Amen? All right. Now, from the very beginning, to any doctors in the room, and there is a doctor in the room, there's doctors online, the very beginning, NASA and astronauts had a very adversarial, kind of an a bad relationship, if you will, with doctors. Not bad, but the doctors were always saying, hey, this is probably going to kill you. Going to space is going to kill you. That was the basic message. Let me unpack it, okay? There were doctors there at the very step that were saying, hey, outer space. Remember, we had never gone to space before. We had never left Earth, and 238,000 miles away is the moon. And so doctors said, look, if we blast you off the Earth, just the, the, the force of that rocket going up into space, just the force of sustained and blasting might actually kill a man. It might stun them. It might be so bad to the body that you'll just black out and you'll not be able to handle it at all. And so they said, how do we test this? So they took astronauts and they put them in centrifuges that spun them around and around to stimulate the feeling of being blasted off Earth. And guess what? They were able to handle it. Now, how many of you are like me, like when you see those spin rides at the park, you just get sick right away. You don't even have to get on it. But some people don't, and so the astronauts were good. And the doctor said, well, sure, secretly we thought that would be the case. But they did this. They said, look, if all the forces of gravity were suddenly gone off your body, you know, gravity might be more important than we really know. So gravity might be, doctors proposed, it might be a binding agent. And they said, here's a direct quote from one of the doctors even a few seconds of weightlessness could actually cause the body to be unable to swallow. And so fluids and nutrients won't be able to reach the stomach and be assimilated. And the heart and the lungs could become confused at best or incapacitated completely at worst. And so they figured, well, how do we test for this? So they took a plane. I'm going to show you a picture of the actual NASA plane. They still have this plane. They still use it. And they took it really high, and then they dropped it really down low, and it's called a parabola. And in that parabola, in the middle of it, you'll have 25 seconds of weightlessness, okay, where you feel one-sixth of gravity, okay, and that's what you feel like on the moon, one-sixth of gravity. So these planes, imagine being on this plane. They had a nickname for the plane. The nickname was called the Vomit Comet. Which, which you could imagine what happened to you when you went weightless and you went down for 25 seconds, okay? And they would do this all suited up in spacesuits, and they would try different things in the mission over and over again in these different airplane experiments, and they got weightless. And so they would go over, and they would fly over and try to grab some food while the plane's in a descent. They would try to swallow it, and it turns out you could swallow in food and space, and it turns out your heart and lungs did not get confused. And the doctor said, well, sure. In fact, we secretly thought that would be the case, but we weren't sure. We're just being careful for your sake. But listen, if you experience sustained weightlessness, right, like if you see where this is going, the new theory began that if you were subjected to even 10 minutes of weightlessness, the eye which is held together by gravity, it would probably just rupture. 
It would probably just, boom, your eyes are gone. So it would just turn into like a puddle in your eye pocket, okay? So Alan Shepard gets launched on a, the 15-minute rocket ride, and they're waiting. And we actually have transcripts where the doctors were saying to the astronaut, how do you feel, Alan? How are your eyes? And Alan's like, I can see. I can see. Alan, can you still see? I can still see. My eyes have not turned to puddles. And it just cracks me up. And the doctor's like, well, sure, sure. We secretly suspected that would be the case. But if we go all the way to the moon and you go come back through the earth, there's a lot of radiation, even inside the ship, even inside your suit. And even when the ship is doing what they called the barbecue mode, where the spaceship would spin like a rotisserie chicken, okay, where it would be exposed to the sun and then not exposed to the sun. Have you all had rotisserie chicken? Why are you all looking at me funny? You don't like rotisserie chicken? Bunch of Whataburger freaks, huh? Yeah, all right. All right, so anyway, so they said if you do that, it'll probably sterilize the man. It's going to mutate the DNA. Uh, and you might turn into some sort of X-man. And it would burn your retinas. And they said it would confuse your nervous system and your whole body. And, and basically, it would just control, all, delete, everything would shut down. And vital functions would, sh- would shut off. And so they did a really long Gemini flight. It's called Gemini. And they kept people in space for almost 14 days. And it was the longest possible they thought we could even take being in space. And guess what? The astronauts smelled really bad when they got back. Now, how many of you like to shower daily? If you don't have your hand up, please don't come back next week, okay? (laughs) We'd like you to shower. Um, They had been in a cabin the size of a Volkswagen, you know, bug for 14 days with no ability to shower. In fact, when they landed in the ocean, they sent a Navy frogman out there to open up the door. The Navy frogman opened up the door, and he said the stench overwhelmed him, and he retched right there in the ocean. Okay, that's how bad they smelled. But guess what? He noticed no one inside the cabin, despite being barbecued, had turned into a cyclops. Nobody had turned into the beast or Wolverine or X-Men or anything. And Michael Collins, one of the crew members of the Apollo 11, had this to say about the doctors. This cracks me up. Living and working with his people was like having an aunt who lives in a haunted house or a close friend who sincerely believes in astrology and can't stop talking about it especially delighting in reading on your horoscope on bad days. None of us believe, but it's pretty difficult to ignore. Amen? Of course, let's be fair. The doctors, they had never, we never sent anyone to space, and they're doing their best to keep men alive. And there's a thousand ways to die in space, a very unforgiving environment. So what's interesting to me about this is they went through all this training. They went through all these different things in NASA to prepare someone to go into space. But they had almost little to no communication about what it would be like for an astronaut to have a successful mission and land and be successful on Earth and be known and become famous. Because as many astronauts put it, by far the most dangerous aspect of the mission was dealing with the unexpected consequences of all of a sudden being thrust into the limelight of being celebrities back at, on Earth. Does this make sense? Okay? It's interesting. It wasn't the radiation. It wasn't the lack of gravity. It wasn't the G-forces sustaining on the Saturn V. It was all of a sudden being back home on Earth and having the disorienting reality of being famous 
and everyone knowing who you are, and everyone wants a piece of you. I mean, if you take Elvis Presley at his highest, Beatlemania at its highest, let's take Justin Bieber at his highest, okay? Our media guy was just at a Justin Bieber concert in Houston, sold out, crazy. People love Justin Bieber. I can't stand Justin Bieber, but they love him. But the cool thing about Justin Bieber's concert in Houston, Brian texts me from the concert. He's like, Justin Bieber is praying to God in the middle of a concert. I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. How about that? I think that's cool. Anyhow, yeah. So you take the height of the Beatles, Elvis, Justin Bieber, and you would have a sense of what it was for these astronauts to come back. John Glenn coming back after orbiting Earth. Alan Shepard after 15 minutes in spaceflight. And, of course, Neil and Buzz and Michael Collins. President Nixon actually gave them Air Force Two to go around the world. And, they, and here's what's interesting. You talk about quarantining. When they came back from space, they thought there might be like space germs. And they'd be infected with space germs. We'd never been there before. So they actually made them go out in the desert and quarantine for three weeks in an RV. But then after that, after it was like, okay, you're medically good, they got to tour the world. They got an audience with the Pope. They went to every king, every prince. New York City, the largest ticker tape parade ever, ever in history of New York, was for the astronauts. Okay? They went down Broadway in an open-top convertible. It's just the absolute insanity of the world's intention. Half a billion people, half a billion, watched or listened to Neil Armstrong's famous words from the moon, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. This is fascinating history to me. Did anyone else find this interesting? Thank you, three of you. Okay, all right. Now, believe it or not, this is actually going to make sense to the sermon. Stay with me. I know it's a long intro. Okay. There was no handbook for what to do when you returned from the greatest mission in the world and you were successful. And that's ironic because Buzz Aldrin actually said there was a simulator for every aspect of the mission, but no preparation whatsoever to help them deal with their now new normal on this planet where they're now household names. And if you read about it, it's kind of sad because the anecdotal reality is a lot of their marriages suffered. A lot of them turned to alcohol. A lot of them turned to drug abuse and substance abuse. A lot of them couldn't handle the fame and being famous. They had never been trained for it and prepared for it. And all that is a perfect illustration of what we're going to see happening with Jesus and the disciples. Because you remember, last week we talked about what? Jesus and the disciples are hanging out, and 20,000 people show up. And what does Jesus do? He gives them all Chick-fil-A sandwiches and fries. And everybody's eating, and everybody goes crazy. So everybody, all of a sudden, Jesus, and he's healing everybody. He's feeding everybody. I mean, you want to be around Jesus. If you're sick, if you're hungry, if you need meaning in life, go see Jesus. So everyone's coming to see Jesus. And the disciples are like, "Woohoo! we're getting popular. We're famous. Hello? So, are you all with me? Somebody say we're with you. All right, thank you. I'd just like to know you're still alive. You're still with me. Here's what I really think you need to understand. (laughs) Now we got secondary comments going on. Okay, that's good. I asked for it. It is part of God's plan for your life to some extent that there be some level of influence and fame for your story. 
This is part of God's plan for your life. God's plan for your life is not just so you'll influence your children, but your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. I want to influence my great-great-grandchildren. I don't want my kids to have kids yet, but you know what I'm saying. Okay? I want to influence, impact generations to come. So let me define my terms. When I say you're famous, you're like, I'm not famous. Yes, you are. What does famous mean? Famous, a simple definition of it is, is to be known by many people. In Jesus' time, he was only really known in a local area. You have the ability to be known worldwide. Thanks to Twitter, Facebook, social media, we are interconnected with everybody. You know there's people that listen to this podcast in Japan? I have no idea how it's translated or how I come out, but apparently I sound pretty good in Japanese. So to be famous means known by many people. Now, stay with me now, because I want you to know that you are influential and that what you do and what you say makes a difference in other people's lives. If you're going to approach school or your calling or sports or the business you're meant to start or the business you're conducting or the ministry you're involved where you say, hey, look, I want to honor and glorify God with everything I say and everything I do, then what's going to happen? Well, you're not going to cut corners. You're going to under-promise and over-deliver. You're going to esteem people better than yourself. You're going to always have this mentality of excellence mixed with generosity. And I'm telling you, where there's a servant heart, but that high-quality standard, and the spirit that, hey, this is not just for me, 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 and you, sep- you will separate yourselves from the majority of people out there that are all about themselves when you start saying, I'm doing this to make up there, come down here. Everything I'm doing is trying to extend God's kingdom, extend God's kingdom, and tell people about the love of Jesus. Hello, come on. I am standing here today because of the influence of my mother. And let me tell you something about the influence of my mother is her prayers never expire, right? A mother's prayers never expire. My mom prayed over me at times when no one thought I was going to be a minister, including me, certainly. Certainly. So I want to tell you, your prayers never expire. They never expire. Your prayers over your children and your grandchildren, they don't expire. They don't go away. And you can live them out. So you see this all over Scripture. Proverbs 22, 4,000 years old, teaches this. Proverbs 22, verse 29. Do you see a man who excels in his work? Well, if you do, he'll stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. Was this true? Did this come true? Has this come true? Absolutely. Absolutely. We live in a country that's fascinated with influence. Look at American Idol. I actually love that show now. I I really like Lionel Richie. I'm old. Come on. Lionel Richie, right? Come on. You're once, twice, three times a lady. <laughs> Come on, man. Lionel Richie was cool, man. Lionel Richie, it's, it's cool. Anyway, I like Lionel. Anyway. But think about this. A man who excels his work, he will not just stand before unknown men. He'll stand before kings. Take King Saul. King Saul in the Bible, he had a lot of moodiness. He had a lot of anxiety. He had panic attacks. He was depressed. They didn't have Prozac. They didn't have Wellbuterin. So you know what he did? What do you do when you get depressed? What do you do, church? I'll hear from you. I heard eat. Queso and chips, that's what I heard. I drink, I heard that. Uh, Somebody say I go to church. Come on, help me out here. Woo! 
come on. I worship sometimes, you know. So King Saul, when he had a bad mood, he couldn't, like some of you, like for me, I, I, I love to go to Spotify and put on some worship music, right? So King Saul, he would like, you know what I need? I need some harp. I need some harp music in here. I need some Spotify music. And so send me the greatest harpist. And so King Saul sent out a decree, find me the greatest harpist. And so they looked around and they looked around and guess who they found? Guess who was the best harpist they found? It was David, who's the future king. And he, he would use all of his alone time when he's not out taking care of the sheep. And what's he doing? He's like Brian Adams, you know, that song, Summer 69, played it till my fingers bled. He's just practicing. And he's writing songs. And David wrote psalms. We read them now as psalms, but they were songs. And they were songs he wrote. When he wrote Psalm 23, he didn't anticipate we'd be reading it at your funeral, which we will do. He thought that was between him and God. It's a song of God. But he's... He was becoming the best harpist because he was doing everything with God and everything with excellence. And one day, he's going to stand before King Saul, and he's the best harpist. It's amazing. And David fulfilled prophecy. So whether you're a furniture maker or a home builder or an architect or a plumber or a school teacher or you have a business, if you have a spirit that says, hey, look, God's in me, excellence is in me, it's going to come out of me because God's spirit is in me, then integrity is going to flow through me. I'm going to live as a person of influence. And if God's in me, I'm not going to rip people off when I can. I'm not going to use people. I'm going to always honor God in what I do. And I'm telling you, whatever industry you're in, there will be a sense where people say, I want to get to know that person because they're a person of integrity. Hello? You can become a person of influence by how you use what God's given you. And, man, everybody in this room, you have a lot of talents. You have a lot of gifts. And God's given it to you, and you can choose. I'm going to use it for me, or I'm going to use it for the kingdom. I mean, think about Jesus, the Son of God. He could do anything he wants. What did he do with his influence? So God's going to bless you. God's going to bless you. And what happens is what happens is we get blessed, and then we have an opportunity to become more generous or to become greedy. In Proverbs eleven twenty four, 24, I love this. The world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller, right? Look at this. This is just happening right now with Twitter. Elon Musk bought Twitter, bought it out. What's it like to write a check for $44 billion? I can't even, how would you write that out? Would you write it out? $44 billion. You're a banker, Dave. Can you help me out with it? Would that just be a transfer? Could you transfer that much money, Dave? Too many zeros. Yeah, too many zeros. I'm in the slow math class. $44 billion. But I love, have you all seen the Texas rancher who said, yeah, I got 100 acres. It's worth a couple million dollars. Just come set up your Twitter headquarters right here, Elon Musk. That's a generous offer. Have you been offered hundreds of acres? No. But Elon Musk, is, he's doing it with integrity. And so now the bigger life comes, you get bigger blessings, and you say, I'm going to honor God. And what's going to happen is more people are going to want to listen to you and listen to what you have to say, and they're going to look at your life, and they're going to say, what do you have that I don't have? And you're like, I got Jesus. And there's a sense in which you set yourself apart in ways that people are just going to know what's going on in your life, and they're going to want to be around you, and they're going to do things with you because you are, every one of you, are an influencer. You are. And when you deny it, you're just denying reality. And as that happens, the bigger your life gets, now you have an opportunity to steward. 
And now it's not just doing things for you, but doing things for the kingdom. I'm going to do more for the world. I could have a position where I can leverage my power and pay it forward. I just love this way of thinking because here's what I'm telling you. Your prosperity is for a purpose. It's not just so you can be blessed. The blessing God wants to entrust you with is so that more can flow through you. Hello? Come on, somebody help me out here and get excited about this. I'm getting hungry for lunch. And so the cycle continues. And so look at Daniel. Here's another example. Daniel was not a pastor. Daniel wasn't really even a prophet, but he became one only because of how he lived his life. Daniel was in a secular government system, and he conducted himself in such a way, ate certain foods, did certain things for God, wouldn't bow to Nebuchadnezzar, wouldn't bow to those kings, and he distinguished himself from everybody else because he worked hard, had integrity, and so what did the king do? It gave him more promotions and to give Daniel more opportunity, to give Daniel more responsibility within his administration. And he came to a place where the king's like, brother, here's a purple robe and here's a gold chain and, you know, and, you know, here's some stuff for crunching your teeth and all that. I don't know. Everything, you know, just, and, and Daniel's like, well, purple's not really my cover, but I'll wear it. And no matter what the king entrusted Daniel's care, he always, always pointed back to God. Okay, let your life shine not for yourself, but to point to God. Okay, he's showing us something, stewarding us the complexity of success. So that's the good side of it. And, you know, Matthew 5, verse 16 says this, right? And we teach this song to little kids in church and chapel time. We sing it. This little light of mine. Come on, let me, I'm going to let it shine. Come on. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Because you know what? A little light in a dark room can put out a lot of light, right? It only takes one candle. And when you light someone else's candle, it takes nothing away from your flame. And so there you go. So Jesus says, would you let your light shine before others so they may see your good work? So why? So that you'll glorify your Father in heaven. It's all about bringing God glory. So people will know that God exists. Come on. Thank you. I got a spontaneous amen. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord. I think it's the goatee. Why are you shaking your head, baby doll? Renee went to H-E-B yesterday. She came home with a 30-pack of razors, 30-pack. I just threw it in the drawer. (laughs) Oh, where the heck am I at? I don't even know where I'm at. So, that, this little light of mine, I'm going to sound like, that, that sounds like celebrity to me, right? People see you, they glorify the Father in heaven, and they're saying, man, I want, I want what you have. And, you're, and they're thinking, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, and you're like, no, I'm, I'm pointing to the greatest thing since sliced bread, and that's God. So, and, you, and when you're this person that says, I just want to honor God, and I just want to love people, and that's why I don't cut corners, and that's why I lead with integrity, that's why I take care of people. So every time I get paid, every time I'm blessed, My mentality is, how do I bless the kingdom with this? Okay, how do I tithe with this? That's why I give, okay? And I'm telling you, these principles work. And when it's applied, again, Philippians 2.15, as you serve God, may you become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And what does Paul say? Again, so that you may shine as lights in the world. Okay? So what's the definition of famous? More people who know you. If you have a lot of people that know you, everyone in this room is famous. You have influence. 
If you're shining brightly in a dark world, newsflash, people are going to see you and take note. If you're doing God's work, guess what? Activate your followers. Don't just collect them like stamps. Tell them to get busy doing God's work. So now here's the bittersweet truth about being famous and the sweet side. I hope that God entrusts you with more. I hope you have more influence and more leverage for the good. But there's a bitter side as well. And that's actually where we're going in this text with Jesus. There's a bitter side as well. And the bitter side is what the disciples found out and what the astronauts found out. The easiest thing is when you have success in your life, when you have good things happening in your life, the tempting thing is to do this. Well, of course. I mean, look at my talent. Look at how smart I am. Look at how good I am. Look at what a great preacher I am. And pretty soon you're doing the king pose or the hero pose. And you're letting it go to your head. And you're using what God blessed you with, but you think you created it all. It's easy to think, hey, God's lucky to have me on the team. And you forget that he was the one who gave you the capacity for creating wealth and creating talent and creating influence. He's the one that gave you talent. Anyone here make yourself? No. He was the one to let you be born in the home you were born in, to the parents you were born in, raised in the country you were creating, with the functioning use of your limbs. You see what I'm saying? Then God gave you these talents, gave you the ability as you follow him. As you, as, and he said this to the people of Israel, right? He said this. He said, I'm going to pull you up out of slavery, and I'm going to put you into fields that you didn't plant. It's called the promised land. And I'm going to give you homes that you didn't build, and I'm going to give you things that you didn't have. In fact, I'm going to tear down Jericho, and I'm going to part the Red Sea, and I'm going to give you manna in the wilderness, and I brought you out of Egypt, God says, with my right hand. So don't get in the land and think, hey, you did this by yourself, because what? It's easy, easy to get, you know, to be born on third base and think you hit a triple, right? And God has given you everything, but then you walk around like a mighty king, like, look what a famous town I built up over here. Look at my empire. Look at my influence. When you have success in your hand, great. You can use it for the kingdom, but you you can also use it for yourself. And that's a temptation. And Jesus knew the disciples were there. 20,000 people come, and they're chanting, and they're shouting, and they're celebrating Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, guys, I got to get you in a boat. We got to get out of here. And if you're disciples, you're super confused. You're like, hey, we, we picked the right horse, didn't we, boys? They're high-fiving each other. They're like, do you hear the crowd shouting, Jesus for king, Jesus for president? 20,000 people came to see us. 20,000 people, that's a big church. That's a lot of offering, even if everybody gives a little bit. And those of you who give a little bit, you know what I'm talking about. And they're like, we bet on the right horse, didn't we, boys? They're high-fiving each other. They're practicing their regal look. They're asking each other, hey, you think I can sit on the right or the left of Jesus? You think I could be like very VIP in the kingdom? I mean, Jesus is going to be like David and Solomon. He's going to overtake the Romans. And Jesus is like, hey, you guys need to get in a boat. And they're like, get in a boat? What? 
John's Gospel, the sixth chapter, they couldn't handle the fame and success just like the astronauts. After these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him, right? The crowd's coming because they saw the signs which he performed on those who were diseased. So that's the content. All these people were following him. What happened? Well, they got hungry. Then they got hangry, and Jesus fed them, and they're all excited. And you'll notice in verse 15, we jump down here. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come, the crowd, and take him by force and make him their king, right? Jesus is like, I know what's going on here. He departed again to the mountain by himself alone, right? Now, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over to the sea toward Capernaum. So Jesus told them to get in the boat. And when it was already dark, Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose, and the great wind was blowing. So in other words, there's a big storm, okay, on the lake, and the disciples were afraid. So when they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. When's the last time you saw someone walking across a lake? And I ain't talking about right now when there's no water in it. You know what I'm talking about when there's water. And they were afraid. But Jesus walked on water, and he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And then they received him into the boat. And immediately they were back at the land where they were going. Jesus perceived they were about to make him king. How did he do that? Because he's in touch with the Holy Spirit, which is where you ought to be as well. To stay grounded, just to handle all that God wants to give you. But the disciples, they were, at the, they were going to be at the front of the mob, kill the beast. They had the, the pitchforks and the lanterns. Let's go. Jesus for president. And Jesus is like, get in the boat. And Jesus goes up to the mountain to spend time alone in prayer. And this should give you pause. They're about to get terrified by the waves of the, of the storm. But Jesus is more afraid of the attention and the storm of the people. And I quote one scholar who said, Jesus knew there was more danger in the favor of the crowd than the fury of the storm. We tend to get freaked out by trials. We should perhaps be more sober and more cautious by the wave of popularity of having influence. Because if you live by success, you can also die by success. So Jesus got him away. He extricated himself. How does Jesus sneak away from 20,000 people? Is it like Jedi mind tricks? What's going on here? Because Jesus knew they wanted to make him king. And Jesus wanted to go spend time with the king, with his heavenly father, just like you need to. So if you're not going to be fooled by success, Rudyard Kipling put it this way. I love this. Meet with triumph, right, success, and disaster, in other words, failure, and treat those two imposters just the same. In his beloved poem, If, and at the end of that poem, he says, if you can do that, yours is the earth and everything in it. In other words, don't get too fooled by success. And don't get too fooled by crisis and trial. Nothing's changed. So Jesus wasn't fooled by the crown that the crowd wanted to give him because he knew that wasn't a real crown. He knew those people didn't have a crown to give him. They had their favor and their attention, but that didn't mean anything to him. All he cared about was an audience of one living for God. When the disciples were like, hey, don't you care about these 20,000 people? So here's the question. Who are you living for? An audience of one or an audience of many. See, when it comes to being influenced and being under the influence, and every one of us lives under the influence of somebody, 
you're all the influence of somebody. And you could probably you could probably tell me who that is. Can you? Yes, amen. Three of you, thank you. But you can say this, I can't control who follows me, but I can't control who I follow. And Jesus knew, Jesus knew I can please people and fail God. It's very possible and very easy in our time to please people and fail God. And boy, that's a hard thing to do, especially as a pastor, because I want to please people. I really do. I want you to like me. Why would you not? (laughs) Don't answer that. (laughs) Jesus knew they were offering him the same thing the devil offered him in the wilderness, a crown without a cross. And he knew there would be no crown for any of us if he wasn't willing to face the cross. Come on, someone get excited. That's good stuff right there. And so he says, get thee behind me, Satan. I'm not going on this ride. And the bigger your life gets, the more you have to stay on your knees to spot temptations that are going to open up for you. And not every opportunity is from God. You need to be listening to the Holy Spirit to know the difference. That's the complexity of success. And that's what happened with the astronauts. They couldn't handle it. So there's also a problem with obedience. Now, this is the part of the sermon where like, what? I thought pastors always talk about there's a problem of disobedience, right? But there's actually a problem of obedience here. Because these disciples are in a storm that Jesus sent them into. What does that mean? That means we sometimes serve a God who's willing to send his children into storms. This is the part where you don't like it, I know. It would be, now, not, and now let, me hear, let me be clear, not everything you face is from God. Not everything. And there are some things that you face that are right from the, from the evil one, from the father of lies. And there are some storms you face because you did something stupid. I don't even want to share the times I've been in storms because I did something stupid. But Renee can tell you all about it. Jonah, why was he in a storm? God told him to go one way, he ran the opposite way, got on a cruise ship and went the opposite way. And he explained to the sailors, well, the reason I'm in the storm is because I ran from God. And so they said, well, overboard with you. Now, to be clear, the devil does do stuff, and you and I are stupid at times. So we're more than capable of facing storms because we did something dumb. But thanks be to God that he helps us out through both of those storms, right? But this is a different category. This was not a storm that was brought about by the devil. This was not a storm because the disciples did something wrong or stupid. In fact, as I read it, this is a storm they went into because they did something right. They were obeying Jesus, taking him at his word. Hey, launch the boat, he said. It'll be great, he said. Go on a cruise, he said. And next thing you know, we're in the middle of a storm. Now they're raging wind and raves, and it's sketchy. They're in a little dinghy, and it gets their attention, and they're scared to death. Several of them are professional fishermen. They know how to get through a storm, and they're scared, right? Right? This is not good. Like, if Uncle Frank says not to watch it, don't watch that show, okay? I thought that was funny. They legitimately thought their lives were in danger. Even if you go there today, you can look at the Sea of Galilee, and it's basically a six-mile lake, and you can have five, six-foot waves that go across a lake, and there's white caps, and it can be very, very rough. And so they're in the middle of the lake. 
it's too, they've gone too far to turn back. What do we do? We're going to die. This is over. And where is Jesus at? Well, according to the text, he's up on the mountain. And Jesus is pleased because the disciples are exactly where, they wanted, where he wants them to be. Why? Because Jesus wants the disciples to be developed. Jesus has sent them into a storm to humble them. Jesus has sent them in a storm to test them, to say, hey, you want to handle popularity? You think it's all about me being a king? I want you to have a smallness of soul. I want you to get out there in that body of water and to recognize that you're not all that in a bag of chips. And he wants them to have a smallness of soul that looks up and goes, how big and how vast, God, you are, how great the sun and the moon and the stars are, and what am I among them? Hello? You ever had that feeling? And so, yes, there's... There's this sense of smallness, but also this sense of weight and strength, the weight of that God's glory has got a plan and that God's in charge and he's good and he told me to get in this boat and his eye is on me. So you have this sense of smallness, but at the exact same time you have this sense of I'm going to be trusted and I'm going to trust God in this moment. I mean, you think about Paul, and this, this actually happened. Jesus said to the disciples before he left them, he said, after I leave, you're going to do greater things than I even did. And you think about all the hospitals built in Jesus' name. I, I wrote in a Devo about how all hospitals started because of Christian faith, because we took seriously when Jesus said, take care of those who are sick. Orphanages, all started by Christians. Taking care of unwanted babies, all started by Christians. Okay? It's all in your DNA. You should know this. This is why we do pregnancy center stuff. Hello? So did, did greater things happen after Jesus left? Yes. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 11. Paul. Paul comes to a place where he would preach in a city. People, look at, look at Acts 19, verse 11. People would actually grab their handkerchiefs and their aprons, and they would touch Paul's body, and then they would go back to people who were sick, and they would touch them with the handkerchief, and diseases would leave their body. That's pretty cool. You, you're impressed with, like, telemed, telemedicine, call your doctor? Just tell your doctor, just send me a handkerchief. Acts chapter 5, Peter, same stuff. Peter, they would bring sick people into the streets and lay them on beds and couches, at least that's... And, and Peter, he would walk by, and if his shadow went across somebody who was laying there that was sick, they would be healed. This is what I call the Bill Murray anointing. You don't get it. Do you remember Bill Murray's, one of his best movies, Groundhog Day? It's Groundhog Day. If his shadow even crosses you, you'll be healed. It's Groundhog Day. Bill Murray anoint. Thank you. You know, Renee said it wasn't any good, too. All right, anyhow. So this is why he's in the storm. So greater things happen. And this kind of stuff he knew he intended to do through the disciples. But he had to humble them first. God has to prepare us first before God can do great things in us and through us. Hello? Sometimes you need to go through a storm to learn to trust on God. So when you don't have a storm. Because it's so interesting because we actually do better in times of trial. You grow the most during times of trial. But nobody ever says, God, send me some trials. Send me into the storm, God. Teddy Roosevelt said it this way. I love this. In pleasant peace and security, 
how quickly the soul of a man begins to die. And for that, every person who's been crushed by adversity, there are a thousand who've been destroyed by success. Right? So before God can do great things through us, he must do great things inside of us. And so we go into storms. And so the third movement of this text, there's danger of the forgetfulness. Because the moment the waves come, the moment the wind howls, the moment they're in danger, all of a sudden the disciples forget everything Jesus has done before this. And they start thinking, we're going to die. Have you ever been going great in life? Things are going good. Then you get sent into a storm and all of a sudden you forget your faith. You forget God. Hello? And what, did, what, what, what are they in? They're in water. And if we've been talking about water all the time, we've talked about water into wine. We've been talking about the man who was by the pool for 30 years, a little bloop and all that. Thank you for the bloop. <laughs> it's the little victories I'll claim. And the, the answer is right at the feet. They're in the middle of water coming in the boat. And it's a great reminder. Jesus has been working through water. The woman at the well, that's about water. It's all through the Gospel of John. The seven signs, they all about water. Because here's what, here's what the devil is really good at. It's forgetting, making you forget about God. The, one of the things about worship is this reminds you that to get your, your mind off your problems and on the one who can solve your problems. And there's so dangers of forgetfulness. Yes, being blessed sometimes is a test. The devil knows he can't get you to shake your fist and say no to God. But he also knows if the devil knows if he can get you focused on your circumstances, on the wind and the waves and all the things going on in your life, you may just forget about God and God's grace. And bad things happen when we forget about what God has done for us in previous seasons. So if you hear anything in this sermon, I want you to hear Jesus say to you today, and I'm dead serious, I'm going to take care of you. That's what Jesus is saying. No matter what happens or how impossible the situation seems, I'm going to take care of you. Even if you're not okay on this side of being okay, I'm going to take care of you. Why? Well, it's the reality of his presence. He's always with you. He's always with you. Jesus felt very far away from those disciples when they were straining at the oars. Jesus felt very far away. It didn't seem like he cared for them. But the Matthew's text tells us where Jesus was the whole time. And the Gospel of Mark says the same thing. Jesus could always see him. He's up on the mountaintop. He could see exactly where they were. He knew exactly where they were. And he was praying for them. And today I want you to understand, Jesus is praying for you too. He can see you, and he's praying for you, and he's God. He's always with you. And that's what he said to him. He said, it is I, so you don't have to be afraid. It's I. That's the famous I am. I am who I am. You're not Popeye, okay? It's I am God. If the one who has created all things has his eye on you and is for you and allowed you to be sent into you into a storm to develop you and promised you safely to get to the other side, in between now and then moments, no matter how crazy those may be, we can trust his presence and we can trust his promise. We don't have to be afraid. I remember uh, 22 years ago when doctors told us that Renee should... Uh, she had some bad blood tests. She's pregnant with Jacob three months into the pregnancy, and there were some correlational, not causal, blood tests that showed that basically, you know, 
things were going to be a disaster, spina bifida, other things. And so she's like, when do you want to sign up for your abortion? I'm like, abortion? Well, hold on just a minute. We're not, we're not doing abortion. We need to pray about this. So we prayed. And I went home and I prayed and I prayed. I want to tell you something. I don't think I prayed that hard ever. And I was literally on my knees. You talk about fighting battles on your knees. Literally overlooking this bay of Corpus Christi, praying on my knees. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And I said, God, I'm not getting up till I get an answer. I'm not getting up till I hear from you. And here's what God says. As clear as you hear my words, God says, John, you're having a son. And I want you to call him Jacob. And everything's fine. And don't abort that child. So Renee comes home from a PTA thing, three months pregnant. And I say, hey, um, I kind of had a significant thing happen. I said, I, I heard God speak to me. And he said that it's a boy. We should name him Jacob. And everything's fine. She goes, well, that's great. I still want to talk to the doctor. <laughs> I said, ye of little faith, woman. Ye of little faith. So the doctor wanted, you know, oh, you can do an amnio. So he says, I said, I don't need to do an amnio. So Renee wanted to do an amnio. We did an amnio. The doctor, I'll never forget, Dr. Espinoza was her name. She called us back. She goes, I have your test results. I said, let me guess. It's a boy. Everything's fine. We're going to call him Jacob. She goes, did the nurse already call you? I said, no, God called me. God called me. She goes, oh, that's right. You're a minister, aren't you? I said, that's right. I am. And guess what? We're getting a new doctor. And we got a new doctor. And what's ironic to me is now Jacob is studying to become a doctor. So don't tell me God won't speak to you. God will. Sometimes it's through a sermon. Sometimes it's through another person. Sometimes it's through a song. Sometimes it's just right to your mind. But God will speak to you. And if you're in the middle of a storm... Know that it could be from God to develop you and humble you and test you and to say, God, where are you? And God may want to give you some advice and coach you in your life. The Greek word that says Jesus came <laughs> sauntering on the storm. That's what the Greek says. He came sauntering on the storm. When's the last time you sauntered? You've been sauntering around lately? There's a lot of different words. We might say he walked, he skipped, he run, he trotted. Have you ever had like a, a glass break in the kitchen and you're, you're in bare feet and everybody's in bare feet and you're like, nobody move till we get the shop back. And you're looking down. That's not how he walked. Jesus, he did like the Conor McGregor. He's walking across the waves like it's nothing because he's got confidence because he's not afraid of the wind and the waves because they know his name. Come on, friends. That's who we have. We have a God who, who made the wind and the waves. And if he made those things, he made you, he's not going to give up on you. God is always for you. And you're always going to be okay. Don't mean you're going to live forever. Every one of this room's going to die. Woohoo, glad we came to church. <laughs> but, and it's a big but, you're going to go to abundant life and eternal life. You're going to go from life to life. And that's the promise. That's the glory. That's the wonderful thing. So let's pray. God of grace, we give thanks that 
you can saunter on the storms that scare us, that you don't get lost in the wind and the waves and circumstances of our lives. And God, I give thanks that you're always there, even in the test, and that you speak to us. And I give thanks, God, that when we are on our knees and we pray and ask for direction, you will give it. So, God, as we look at the storms we face in life, as we look at the storms our nation faces, as we look at the storms, we ask that you would speak to us and bless us and that we continue to do what you call us to do, and that's get to the other side of the lake to keep rowing. And, Father, we're so grateful that on the night that Jesus gave himself up for us, in the midst of a storm that Jesus was going to face called the crucifixion, he took bread and he broke that bread and he said to the disciples, take, this is my body which is broken for you and do this in remembrance of me because we all have brokenness in our life and it's impossible to put it back together and make it whole. And when that supper was over again, he returned thanks to you and he poured out into that cup wine and he said, this is the cup of my forgiveness this is the cup of my salvation. Take and drink, all of you. This is so that you might live under the influence of forgiveness and God's grace and God's love. Or you can live under the influence of something else. But I choose this. And so, Father, we give thanks that Jesus poured out into those cups. And the disciples took and they received, and they were changed and transformed, and they were strengthened, and they recognized it was not about pleasing the crowds, but pleasing you. So, Father, bless these elements of juice and bread. May they be for us the body and blood of Christ that we might live in this world as the light of the world, as influencers for Christ. Famous people pointing the way to the most famous one of all, Jesus. We pray this in his name, the prayer that he taught us as we say now together, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us this day our day of bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. The elders will come forward. You're welcome to come forward and receive the bread and dip it into the juice. And know that everyone is invited. This is not uh, the Presbyterian table. This is God's table. You're invited. And Jesus served Judas and Peter. If he's willing to serve them, he's willing to serve you and me. So come forward and receive the body of Christ broken.
Church, let's all stand and let's sing this last part together. May I never boast. May I never boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. May I not forget the blood he shed. It is by his death. of Christ I am alive because of Christ because of Christ I am alive because of Christ I am alive Amen Amen, Amen. You can live under the influence of a lot of different things. Some people live under the influence of alcohol, of drugs, of substance, of happiness, of money, of success, trying to please other people, or you can live under the influence of God and for God's kingdom. It's up to you. Jesus sent the disciples in a boat to remind them, hey, it's about God. So when the crowds chant your name and you get really, really popular, there's danger there. There's danger. Are you living for them or are you living for God? It's up to you. But I'm hungry. And I'm ready for some potluck. Are you? We're going to honor some mothers over there as well. So let us remember that it's all about Christ. And may we never boast in anything but Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, let all God's people say, Hallelujah. Amen. We'll see you over there.